You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so two weeks ago, we launched a mini-series within our larger set of sermons called uh, Parable, where we have been just working through the stories of Jesus, asking God to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus as we um, work through and think through the stories of Jesus. And so uh, two weeks ago, we started this little mini-series in Luke 15 um, called Who's Your One? And through this series, part of what we're just asking the Lord to do in each of our hearts is to lift our chins above the craziness of 2020. And 2020 has just been insane, hasn't it? What what a crazy year. And we all need help getting our attention lifted up to the most important things. And that's what we're asking the Lord to do, to, to turn our gaze and to lift our chins up toward the things that literally in a billion years from now, think of what's gonna be important. Think of what you're gonna be talking about in a billion years from now. We're doing everything we can in these couple of weeks to lift our chins to to that conversation that in a billion years from now, uh, we're going to be having. In a billion years from now, that's going to be important. So the goal of week one, this was two weeks ago, um, as we just began to work through these parables of Luke 15, the, the goal of week one was in a lot of ways just to lay before us the two categories that matter in the end. There's a lot of superficial ways of thinking about people, but here are the only two ways to categorize people that in a billion years from now will really matter. It's either lost or found. Now, think about that for a moment. Everyone that you know, every family member, every person that you work with, every person in your neighborhood, If you're a student, every person in your class, every friend that you have, all 7 billion people on the planet right now are either lost or found. Is that not a sobering thing to consider? And the Bible is so clear that everyone who remains in their lostness will perish forever. But everyone who is found will flourish forever with God. That's what's at stake. It's not small things at stake. These are the most weighty things in the world for all eternity that are at stake. It's either lost or found. Those are the only two categories. There is no third option. And before these parables of Luke 15 have anything for us to do, they have something for us to see. They want us to see the aching heart of Jesus for the lost. We've said this for the last couple of weeks that in a lot of ways, Luke 15 opens the door into the heart of God. And Luke 15 invites us into the heart of God for us to explore and to look around. And part of what we see inside the heart of God is a heart that is aching for lost things, for lost people. I've said this the last two weeks, but if you put a billion bars of gold on this side, and you put one lost sinner on that side, and then you were to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, which is more valuable to you? What what do you want most and love most? The heart of Jesus would reflexively leap toward that one lost sinner. This is the value that God places on lost things. This is the heart of Jesus. The aching heart of Jesus. In church, Jesus wants to give us his aching heart. He wants us to open up our hands and to receive his aching heart. I mean, just think about what's at stake for a moment. 
If hell is real and terrible and eternal, and if the only thing keeping people from hell is the thin line called death, I mean, that's got to affect our heart in some way. If we have the aching heart of Jesus, it's got to do something to us. It's got to put in us an ache to see lost people found. That was week one. Just praying and asking God to give us that ache. And then last week was all about finding the lost. Now, think about Luke 15, in particular those first two parables for a moment. We're supposed to see through uh, the the sort of pursuing shepherd, going after that lost one, and and to see through that pursuing woman, finding that lost coin. Uh, We're to see through those two characters all the way up to God. These stories give us a picture of God as a pursuer. Our God goes after lost things. That is the God that the Bible presents. He is a God who who seeks diligently after lost things until they're found. And what we see in the heart of God, we're meant to receive from God. This chapter is meant to turn us into pursuers of lost things. It's meant to get us up and moving after and going after things that are lost. Diligently seeking, intentionally seeking those who are far from Jesus. So last week, uh, we committed our ones to Jesus. It was just a special moment. If you were here, it was such a, a beautiful moment of us bringing our one, filling out that little card, bringing our ones to Jesus and just offering them to Jesus and saying, God, would you use me in their life for their rescue? God, would you do that? Such a special moment. And I want to be clear on what we're asking everyone to do. That is, by the end of the year, everyone that that turned in their one, that you would initiate that spiritual conversation with that person before the year's end. And I want to be clear on the goal. It's 100% participation. So if you missed last week or you weren't able to turn in your card last week, um, this is the week to do that. Um, At the end of the service, we'll give you some time to fill out that card and, and to really just offer that person to the Lord, asking the Lord to rescue and redeem them. We'll give you time, but it's 100% participation. That's the goal. And if you're online with us, um, we want you to be in on that. You can go to stonegate.church slash one. You can fill out your card there. And we want every single person in our church family uh, to be in on this with us. And church, wouldn't it be an amazing thing if God might use this little season of our church's life and next year produce um, the sort of fruit of maybe a couple of hundred baptisms? Just people meeting Jesus left and right. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if the Lord would do that? Gosh, I would just love to see that. So let's pray for that and and pursue that. Now, today we're turning our attention to the last of the parables in Luke 15. There's three parables. Today we're we're looking at the last one, turning our attention to this last parable. It's probably Jesus' most famous parable. And as we bring this little mini-series, Who's Your One, to a close, it has one important insight that I want to make sure every one of us see. One massively important insight. I just, gosh, I don't want you to miss. I want to make sure that God is giving us a category to see these things that this parable shows us. And here's the insight. There are two ways to be lost. There's not one way to be lost. 
There are two ways to be lost. When we talk about having an ache for the lost and pursuing the lost, it's important that we see that there's not just one way to be lost. There are two ways to be lost. Okay, so think about this last parable. It really should not be called the parable of the prodigal son. That, that is a misnaming of this parable. Um, primarily because look at how the parable starts in verse 11. And Jesus said there was a man who had how many sons? Two sons, right? It's not a parable about one son. It's a parable about two sons. And these two sons represent the two ways to be lost. Here's way number one. Way number one, we might call little brother lostness. Little brother lostness. Now let's think about the context for a moment. Um, These parables are told to a crowd consisting of two groups of people. And you see this in the first two verses of chapter 15. Now look at those first two verses, verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to, to, to him. And the, the uh, verb there is in a present tense, which means it was an ongoing thing. It was just continually happening uh, that these tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus. And then verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So here is one group that's in the crowd listening to these parables. It's the crowd of the tax collectors and sinners. Now, who do do those people sort of represent? Uh, They are representing the openly rebellious, the outwardly immoral. They're the people that when you think of lostness, this is is what you think of. That's uh, this crowd of people. Um, for, for this crowd, there was no sin that was off limits. Every sin was in the category of committable. I mean, they, they, there was no limits to, to the way that they would sin. They were running from God. You can think of them this way. They, they were running from God, and they were doing it in a way with their middle finger up in the air. It was outward. It was rebellious. It was so easy to see. Uh, you might think of this crowd this way. They were seeking freedom by breaking the rules. That they were seeking freedom by breaking the rules. And in their mind, you save yourself. Now, you could substitute for that word save, um, you find visibility in life. You find value in life. You find significance in life. You find satisfaction, what your heart really wants. You save yourself in late nights and loose living by just being outwardly rebellious, by doing whatever you want, when you want. That's how you save yourself. And this way of running from God, this way of being lost is presented in this chapter as the lost sheep, the the lost coin, and the lost little brother. Look at verse 12. And the younger brother, the little brother, said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And then it says that he, the father, divided his property between them. So the little brother comes to the the dad and says to the father, and says, "Uh, give me the money. Let's do this thing. Divide it up and and give me the money. And um, just for the record, I would actually enjoy it if you would just get out of my life, dad. That's what happens in verse 12. Um, This was the equivalent of of essentially saying, um, dad, I wish you would just die. That's the equivalent of what's happening in verse 12. Now, think about that form of sinning, what it's representing. Uh, This is big, bright, bold sorts of sin, isn't it? It's the sort of sin that when you look at it, you're not wondering, is that sinful or is that not sinful, right? 
It is a very, a very obvious way of, of sinning. Now, in that way, this sort of way of running from the Lord or lostness is what we think of. When, when we think of the word lost, this is what we naturally think of. It's, it's this big, bold, bright form of, of running from the Lord. Now, the next few verses in Luke 15, um, essentially are a storied presentation of Romans 6, 26, that the wages of sin is death. Watch what happens. The little brother's life just disintegrates. He hopes to find freedom in running from the father, so he goes into the far country, but he soon finds that all that glitters is not gold. In verse 13, the last phrase in nine words, in verse 13, the last nine words, his wealth is absolutely wrecked. But the grace of God was on the way for this prodigal lost little brother. And the grace of God took on the painful form of a famine in verse 14. Do you see that there? And that famine caused our rebellious lost runner to be in need. So he gets a job with a Gentile. And not just with the Gentile, it's with the Gentile feeding pigs. Now, for a pork chops are off-limit Jewish person in the crowd, right? I mean, that, that's all the Jewish people listening to this story. Uh, uh, Gentiles were a whammy and pigs were a whammy, right? For, for all of those listening, it, it is eliciting this feeling as Jesus is telling the story. This lost son could go no lower than this. There is no way he could sin that would be bigger than this. That's what this story is communicating to this crowd. But in verse 17, the grace of God turns this runner's rebellious heart. He comes to his senses, he repents, and he returns to the Father. And one day, during his daily scans of the horizon, with an aching heart for his lost son, the Father spots him in the distance. And look at verse 20. It says, but while he, the lost son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now that is a picture of the heart of God for all of those in the, in the far country. His heart is ready to welcome every prodigal who's tired of the far country and ready to come home. And then you see this amazing picture of the grace of God. When the prodigal comes, uh, comes home, when, when the, the one who is lost is found, the father kills the calf, he invites over the whole town, and it's stakes for everyone, right? It's just this amazing picture of the heart of God waiting and really ready to celebrate every lost son who is found. It's an amazing picture of the heart of God. Now, let me just stop here and, and say this. There are some in this room, or maybe you're watching online this morning, and you are in the far country. You have been running from God in all sorts of big, bold, and bright ways. And God has you here today to look at you through the parables of Luke 15 and to say to you, I am waiting for you to come home. My arms are wide open to you. I, I am waiting, and I am ready to celebrate your homecoming. God isn't standing there with the club ready to hit you when you come home. He is standing there with the calf ready to be killed and steaks ready to be grilled on your behalf to celebrate your homecoming. So, so if that's you today, just see the heart of God for you in the far country. He is waiting on his tiptoe, scanning the horizon, waiting for you to come home today. 
Now, that would be a fitting end to this parable, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be the same end that the, the first two parables have. What's lost is found and the party is started. Verse 24 is a perfect conclusion to Luke chapter 15 if Jesus is only addressing big, bold, bright sinners like the tax collectors and sinners. Right? If that's the only crew who he is aiming Luke 15 at, that is where the, the parables should stop. This is where the chapter should stop. But the crowd also contains Pharisees and scribes. And the last part of Luke 15, the last part of this parable is mainly for them. This is why the parable starts by saying a man had two sons and each son shows one of the ways to be lost. Way number one is little brother lostness. It represents the obvious lostness of the tax collectors and sinners. But the second way to be lost, we might call big brother lostness. It's the other way that we can be lost. It represents the less obvious lostness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, let's think about the Pharisees for a moment. And I want to be fair to them because the Pharisees were the good guys in the New Testament. Right? I mean, they are the people who are clean cut and conservative. They are religious. They are moral people. Right? They are the best people around. They're the people that when you're telling your son or daughter, grow up to be like blank, they're the sort of people you're saying, please, by all means, grow up to be like them. They are the good guys. They are the moral people. And in our 21st century context, they're the hardworking, church-attending, Bible-caring, Scripture-quoting crowd. They're the people you would want your sons and daughters to be like. But here is the punch of the parable. Now listen to this. Here is the punch of the parable. The Pharisees and the scribe were good guys, but they were equally lost. They're just lost in a different way. Their lostness looked different. They were, you might think of it this way, they were religiously lost. They were the good guys, but they were equally lost. They were religiously lost. And here is the whole problem of the parable. Here's the whole problem of Luke 15. The problem is they didn't know they were lost. They were equally lost, religiously lost. They just couldn't see it. They, they didn't know it. Where the tax collectors and sinners were seeking freedom, they were seeking to save themselves by breaking the rules that the Pharisees and scribes sought freedom by keeping the rules. Rather than running from God by being disobedient, now catch this, they were actually running from God by being obedient. That's the sort of categories that Luke 15 wants to give us. That you can run from God, yes, in an obvious way by being disobedient, but you can also be running from God and being lost in your sin, not by being disobedient, but by being obedient. If the first group thought being bad could save you, this group, the Pharisees and the scribes, thought being good could save you. And Jesus is clear, although their running looks so different, they're both lost. One is a lost lawbreaker, that's the little brother, and one is a lost law keeper, that's the big brother. Now, okay, I want to linger here for a moment because um, I've just found over the years that many people do not have these categories that Jesus wants to give us really throughout the New Testament and in particular here in Luke 15. So uh, let's linger here and work some of this out. 
almost everyone defines sin as doing the wrong things, right? As breaking the rules. And that is obviously sin in the Bible when you break the commands of God. So almost everyone defines sin like that, doing the wrong things. But here is why the last eight verses in Luke 15 are in the Bible. They're in the Bible to show us that sin is bigger than doing wrong things. It's also doing right things for wrong reasons. That is also sin in the Bible. So think of our elder brother. He is impeccable, right? It's just impeccable obedience. He stayed at home in the parable. He's doing all the things that his dad asked him to do. He's working hard. He's loyal and he's moral. He's all of those things, but he is equally lost. He's he's equally lost in this story. Now, how is that? How could he be doing all the right things, all the good things, but still be lost? Here's the, the parable's answer. His good behavior becomes dangerous and even damning because he's trusting in his good behavior rather than in the good behavior of Jesus to save him. I'm going to say that one more time. Here's what this parable is trying to show us. Here's the problem of the parable. That this older brother, his good behavior becomes dangerous and even damning because he's trusting in his good behavior rather than in the good behavior of Jesus to save him. Now, this is the problem in the New Testament with the Pharisees and the scribes, with the religious leaders, with the good guys in the New Testament. This is what they continually were doing. This is why in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, says that they are the people who are trusting in their good behavior rather than in Jesus for God's approval. That was the problem with the Pharisees and scribes. They're they're looking at their good behavior and they're trusting in it to secure for them their place before God. And this is exactly what our elder brother, our big brother, is representing in this parable. Now look at verse 29 and you see it here. It says, but he answered his father, the big brother, the, the older brother. He answered his father and he said, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. I am keeping all the rules, he's saying. Everything that you ask, I am doing. And then he goes on. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, what is the elder brother, the big brother doing here? He is relating to the father based on his performance for the father. That's the problem of the parable. He's relating to the father based on his performance for the father. Now, in, uh, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, Martin Luther, the reformer, says that this is the default mode of the human heart, to relate to God based on our performance for God. He says this is the default setting of, of our heart. It's to believe that we earn God's blessing through our good behavior, uh, that we earn God's grace through our good living, that rightness with God is achieved through our right living. That that is the default mode of our heart. That when you wake up on Monday morning, your heart has a way of defaulting into that way of viewing the world and relating to God. This is the default mode of the human heart. Now, let's contrast that, relating to God based on our performance to God, let's contrast that with the good news of Jesus. The gospel first says that we have no righteousness of our own. 
This is how Isaiah says it in Isaiah 64, 6. He says, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Now that is God with a sense of humor and a lot of sarcasm saying, your righteousness. Now, listen, it's not saying the worst things that you do. He's saying that your righteousness, the, the best things that you do are like minstrel cloths to me. That's what Isaiah is saying, or God through Isaiah is saying. Not, not your worst things, but your best things are like filthy rags. This is Paul in Romans chapter 3 saying, there are none who are righteous. There are none who are righteous. That's Paul saying, you cannot achieve rightness with God through your good deeds. You, you cannot do that. Paul's saying that your best works. Now, think about the best things you've ever done in your life. Maybe it's helping the poor. Maybe that's your great parenting. Maybe that's your work ethic. Maybe that's your prayer life or your Bible reading. The best things about your life. He's saying that, that your best works, when, when they are being used to secure God's approval, are deserving of God's wrath. He's saying that there is no one who is righteous. So here is the good news of Jesus. We, we come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. No longer trying to achieve our righteousness, but we get to open up our hands and receive the righteousness of Jesus. That's, that's the gospel. It's the righteousness of Jesus received by faith. Not achieved by our good works, but, but received by faith. Now, think about this story for a moment and ask yourself the question, who is in the greatest danger in this story, the little brother or the big brother? If you were just to, to say, which of the two are you most worried about in this story, little brother or big brother? Who would you say? At the start of the story, we would all say, man, I'm most worried about the little brother. That guy is a train wreck. I mean, are you watching his life? It is disintegrating before his eyes. He comes and, and grabs for the money. Then he runs into the far country where he squanders everything. This guy is working for a Gentile, feeding pigs. It just doesn't get any worse than that. So, so of course, the little brother is who I'm most worried about. But isn't it amazing how the story ends? The story ends with the rule-breaking younger brother coming to his senses, turning from his sin, and receiving the Father's forgiveness. And our younger brother is the one, by the end of the parable, who is inside the house feasting with the Father. But, but here is the punch of the parable. It's the rule-keeping, clean-cut, conservative older brother, the Pharisee, who refuses to come in and feast with the Father. The punch of the parable is... The rule breaker is the one who gets in, and the rule keeper is the one who stays out. It's a storied presentation of Matthew 21, 31, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Who's the you? It's your rule-keeping Pharisees, your good-behaving people, your morally upright crowd. The tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, why would that be true? Here's why. Because the only thing you need to receive the grace of God, the only thing you need, if you want the grace of God this morning, here's the only thing you need. It's need. That's it. 
That the only thing you need is need to receive the, the grace of God. And see, this is the little brother. He wakes up in a pigsty. I mean, that's like a 21st century prison in Mexico. I mean, it would be the, the, the worst thing you could possibly imagine waking up in. This is his life. And, and for the little brother, his sin is easy to see. He's got no good works to trust in. He has to, he has to really take like a magnifying glass out over his life to find anything good that he could trust in before God. He, he just can't find good deeds to trust in. So he's got the one thing you need to receive the grace of God. Need. He feels his need, but our big brother, he's not in a pigsty. You know where our big brother is? He's in church. That's where he is. Uh, He's probably in some seminary classes during the week. He reads his Bible. He prays. He gives. He serves. His deeds are so good that he just can't see how someone could ever call them filthy rags. That's our big brother. His good behavior blinds him. His good deeds rob him from the one thing he so desperately needs. It robs him of need. Uh, Listen to Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God. Uh, It's a book written over Luke 15. Talk about this. He says it this way. He says, the elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. Now, isn't that amazing to think about? The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It's not his sin that creates the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. I mean, isn't that ironic? When when you read this parable, this should be the shocking thing that jumps out and grabs you from this parable. The elder brother's good behavior is actually more dangerous and more likely to eternally damn him than the younger brother's bad behavior. Is that not amazing? This is what Luke 15 is trying to show us. This is what the last eight verses in Luke 15 are there for, to show us how dangerous our good deeds can be. And if we're trusting in our good deeds before God, they will eternally damn us. Now, think about this maybe like this. Uh, Think about what it requires for the little brother to become a Christian. Uh, For the little brother to become a Christian, he just has to see that his bad behavior is useless before God. And when you wake up in a prison cell somewhere, that's a lot easier to see, right? When you're in the far country working for a Gentile, feeding pigs, that's a lot easier to see. All he has to do is realize my bad behavior is useless before God. But think about what has to happen for the elder brother to become a Christian. For that to happen, he has to see that not just all of his bad behavior is useless before God, but that all of his good behavior is useless before God. And that is hard. And the better our good deeds, the more tempting they are to trust. The better we are, the more likely we'll find ourselves trusting in our good behavior rather than the good behavior of Jesus for us. I love how John Gerstner says this. He's a theologian. He says it this way. He says, the main thing between him, this older brother, and God is not sin, but his damnable good works. Do you have a category that can see that? That it's not his sin that's separating him from God, but his damnable good works. 
his filthy rags that he is wanting to trust in. The problem with the Pharisees is that they were sure that their good works secured the smile of God. And because of that, their good works immunized them from the saving work of Jesus. Because of that, their good works actually damned them. This parable shows us that hell won't just, won't just have bad people who have done bad deeds, but hell will also have good people who trusted in their many good deeds, law-keeping people, respectable moms and dads, rule-following and obedient sons and daughters, Bible-caring and scripture-quoting church members, and even beloved pastors and preachers. Let me say it again this way. Part of what this parable is trying to show us is that to become a Christian, you don't just turn from your bad deeds that you know disqualify you before God. You do that, but it's not just that. To become a Christian, you also turn from your good deeds that you think somehow qualify you before God. But to become a Christian, you've got to turn from all of those things, both your bad deeds that you know disqualify you and your good deeds that you are so tempted to believe qualify you before God. You've got to turn from all of those things and hurl your life upon the perfect life of Jesus. To become a Christian means that you've abandoned all hope in your performance. That Maybe you can think of it this way, that you've actually gotten to the point where you've given up on yourself. And once you give up on yourself, you know what you naturally want to do? Cling to the perfect record of Jesus that was lived in your place. His perfect life, his death, his resurrection from the dead. That's what it means to become a Christian. You've given up on yourself and you've finally gotten to Jesus. Welcome to Christianity. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I just want to finish here with some signs of religious lostness. Some signs of religious lostness. Now, when I think of this parable, um, I think there's many ways that we could apply these things and talk about these things. But at a minimum, it should make us ask these questions. Am I the, the elder brother, the big brother? Is that me? Is that, is, that, is that where I find myself in the story? Uh, one of the, the most haunting stories in the New Testament, uh, New Testament for me is in Mark chapter 12. This scribe comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. Out of all the 613 laws, wh which is the greatest of all of those commandments? And Jesus responds by saying, well, here it is. It's to love God and love your neighbor. That, that's the greatest commandment. And the scribe looks back and says, Jesus, you're right. I, I agree. Those are the greatest commandments. And then Jesus looks back at him and says this in Mark chapter 12, verse 34. He says, or the, the scriptures say, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, listen to these words, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. That's our elder brother in Luke 15. He never leaves the house. But when the story ends, he's not in the far country. He's just a step or two outside the front door. He, he's not far from the kingdom of God. He's, he's right there at the door. He can, he can hear the party going on. 
He, he can see the celebration through the windows, but he's just not in there feasting with the Father because he can't get over the fact that his good deeds will not secure his place before God. And I just wonder if that's you. If the thing between you and God is not that you are running to the far country in your sin, but you're just so good that you don't have any need. That you just, it's just your goodness that's blinded you to your need of the grace of God. So I think we should all ask that question, am I the elder brother? And this is what so worries me in our culture. Um, so many people in our culture sleep well at night thinking they are right with God. And if you were to cut down to the core of their heart, the reason they think they are right with God is because they have done enough good things in their life to secure their place before God. And if one day when you stand before the Lord, your plan is to whip out your resume of your good works, you're going to be devastated when Jesus looks at your list of good works and calls them filthy rags. So that's one question for us. Am I the elder brother? But here's the second question. Maybe it's not, am I the elder brother, but is it, am I elder brother-ish? Ish. Um, the, the default mode of our heart is to drift back and to gravitate back toward relating to God based on our performance for God. We keep drifting back to those big brother tendencies. Uh, so let me sort of finish up here with this quote. It's going to be an extended quote from Jerry Bridges. And I'm hoping it might provide clarity and helpfulness to us as you're just trying to discern. Do I, do I see those elder brother-ish tendencies in me? He says this, My observation of Christendom is that most of us tend to base our personal relationship with God on our performance instead of on his grace. If we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. We give lip service to the attitude of the Apostle Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But our unspoken motto is, God helps those who help themselves. Then he goes on to give 10 diagnostic questions to consider. Now, I just want you to consider these 10 diagnostic questions. How do you know if you're elder brother-ish, if you're, if you're tending to relate to God based on your performance for God? He says, do you tend to live by a list of do's and don'ts? Number two, is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards aren't as high as yours? See, when we relate to God based on our performance for God, whatever we look to in kind of our resume of righteousness, let's just say it's great parenting, that we are dominators when it comes to parents. Then we have a way of looking down our nose at people who parent less well just not quite as good as us. We become very judgmental. Is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards aren't as high as yours? Verse, or number three, do, do you assume that practicing spiritual disciplines should result in God's blessing? Number four, do you feel that you're better than most other people? Number five, has it been a long time since you identified a sin 
and repented of it. You know you have a lot of elder brother-ish tendencies working in you when repentance just never shows up in your life. You just have a hard time finding sin to ever repent of. Number six, do you resent it when others point out your spiritual blind spots? Number seven, do you readily recognize the sins of others but not your own? Number eight, do you have the sense that God owes you a good life? That by your good performance, you've somehow put God in your debt? Uh, Number nine, do you get angry when difficulties and sufferings come into your life? I'll never forget years ago, sitting across from a friend of mine, and his son had run into the far country, just broken his heart into a million pieces. And he looked up at me and he said, Rodney, I have obeyed Jesus. I have come to church. I serve. I give. And this is what God gives me. You see what's under that? Uh, Under that is, I have served God, therefore God is in my debt, and therefore that God who's in my debt ought to give me the life that I want. It's relating to God based on your performance for God. And this, this is number 10. Do you seldom think of the cross? How, how often do you find your gaze turning toward the dying love of Jesus and just being amazed at it? Amazed. But we are never amazed at the dying love of Jesus when we're, when we're pretty confident that our good works are going to secure our place before God. Then he goes on to say, if you found yourself answering yes to at least half of these questions, it's likely you're living under a stronghold of self-righteousness toward God. You need to see it for what it really is, a hideous enemy disguised as a satisfying glory. It will let you down and leave you hanging. Its satisfaction is as short-lived as an ice cube in the blazing sun. Its glory has all the appeal of a well-dressed corpse. And at the end of the day, the fact remains, no amount of personal performance will ever gain the approval of a holy God. Let me end here. My favorite Verse. As I've just thought about Luke 15 and just kind of lived in it for the last several weeks, my favorite verse in Luke 15 is verse 28. It's the last half of verse 28 where, where it says, but he was angry. Talking about the elder brother, he was angry and he refused to go in. I mean, this guy is throwing a pity party. He's upset that the father has killed the fattened calf and is celebrating the fact that his lost brother has been found. He was dead and he's alive. But look at the father's response to the elder brother in verse 28. But his father came out and entreated him. Now, that's just not the response I would have had. If the elder brother would have looked at me and said, I'm not going in there. Great. Enjoy that tree over there. All day, you just enjoy your life out there then. But that's not God. Jesus is making it crystal clear. God's heart is not just for the rebellious, rule-breaking prodigals. It is also for the self-righteous, rule-keeping Pharisees. It says that he came out to him. But we have a God who doesn't just go after lost prodigals. He also goes off after lost Pharisees. And he entreats him. He pleads with him. He implores him. 
Come on in, rejoice with us. And that's exactly what God, our Father, is doing for us today. He's looking at every lost Pharisee in this room and saying, will you come in? What will, you, will you give up on yourself and will you trust Jesus? Will you come on into the house and, and let's celebrate, let's, let's eat the steaks together today. Will you bow with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful. To wipe away the things that wouldn't be this morning. And In church, as we are in a season of our life where we all, 100% of us, are pursuing the lost. That like our God, we are going after lost things, initiating spiritual conversations about Jesus. I think we would do well to first consider, are we found? Are we found? Might we be in that category of religiously lost? That, that less obvious category. And if that's where we are today, here is what responding to Jesus looks like. It looks like turning from all the sin that we know disqualifies us and all of those great things in your life that you feel like somehow qualify you before God. It looks like you giving up on yourself and finally getting to Jesus, throwing your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, moving your life, taking that decisive step toward him, moving all of your life over into the, in with Jesus. That's what responding to Jesus looks like. This is what saving faith looks like. It looks like us bringing not our good behavior, but our need to Jesus. And when we come with the empty hands of faith, Jesus says, finally, I, I would love now to give you my perfect record of righteousness. I would love to secure for you what your good deeds could never secure for you, a, a place before God. Has that moment happened? Or are you found? And for many of us in the room, um, today is the day because you maybe missed last week uh, that, that you get to come and present your one before the Lord. And uh, many of you should have received a uh, who's your one card on the way in. And if you have it there, you can take it out. If not, we're going to have plenty um, up here on the stage. At each side of the stage, we've got some. And um, should be at each of the exits. We've got a couple of baskets with plenty of cards around there. Um, for you to be able to come up, write your one down, offer that to the Lord. And just, it's us together committing that name, that person before the Lord. 
asking the Lord to bust down every barrier between him and them, to rescue and save them. So as we sing today, you're welcome uh, to come up to the front or in the back there and turn in your card. So Father, we love you. God, we are so thankful for the work of Jesus. And Father, we are also sobered by the subtlety of sin. We're sobered to realize that it's not just our bad things that could keep us away from you, but it's also the many good things in our life done for wrong reasons, done believing that they will somehow secure your smile that could keep us from you. So, oh God, would you give us eyes to see these things today? And God, for every religiously lost person in this room, watching online, for every big brother, God, would you rescue us today? Would you give us eyes to see our lostness? And God, would you save us? Would you bring us into the party? God, would you... Would you pull us into the feast? Oh God, do it. Oh God, do it. It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.